due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, in espionage, there's no such thing as a coincidence. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, I'm joined by former CIA officer Christina Hillsberg, and we discuss her fantastic book, Licensed to Parent, in which she discusses how spy skills have helped to raise resourceful and self-sufficient children. I'm sure this interview in Christina's book will be of interest to people who want to learn how professional intelligence officers think and then how to apply that practically in their day-to-day lives. I actually said to Christina off-air that I think this book is actually a fantastic self-help book for adults as much as it is for people who are would-be parents. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can support it in a few ways. First of all, please do leave a review on your podcast app. All reviews help us gain more listeners as it raises the awareness of the podcast. I don't know if you know, but all podcast apps are algorithm-based, and the more interaction the show gets, the more listeners it attracts. You can also become a friend of the podcast through Patreon. For £3 a month, you can become a Patreon subscriber and directly support the show. You'll get a free copy of my film, The Dry Cleaner. Also, you can join us on Twitter. You can directly interact with me by going to at Secrets and Spies. And lastly, you can watch my short spy film, The Dry Cleaner, which was my first attempt at original spy fiction. It's now available on Amazon Prime and Apple TV. It comes in, I think, around about $2.99. One last thing before we begin, I would like to dedicate this episode to my friends Jenny and Luigi, who are expecting their first child this month. I wish them all the best in having a safe birth and enjoy being parents. So without further ado, let's get going. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Thank you. It's great to have you on. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background? Sure. I am a former CIA intelligence analyst, writer, and mom of five. (laughs) And I spent the bulk of my career as an intelligence analyst at the Central Intelligence Agency. And that's where I focused on Africa. I was a political and leadership analyst. And what that means is I was analyzing the political landscape in a particular part of the continent Mm. and advising the president and U.S. policymakers on what was going on there, implications to the United States and opportunities as well. And I was also looking specifically at foreign leaders and writing biographic and psychological profiles of those foreign leaders for for whom I was responsible. Mm. You know, prior to our leaders meeting with them, I would provide a profile about how this person leads, you know, what their style is, things they like, things they don't like, and to just help them prepare our leaders for those meetings. And so I worked on Africa for that. And then that was the bulk of my career. And then towards the end of my career at CIA, I transitioned to the Directorate of Operations, where I was able to do more of the recruit spies, steal secrets side of the house, uh, which was really fun and enjoyable. And that's where I met my husband, who did Directorate of Operations for the, the entirety of his career. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of your early life and how you ended up joining the CIA? Sure. You know, it was actually a happy accident. I studied Africa and linguistics, specifically Swahili and Zulu, mm. uh, because I was interested in the 
politics, interested in the language mm-hmm. and the structure, and just fell in love with it in college. Of course, um, studied abroad in Tanzania, and I knew I wanted to do something related to Africa. And I just happened to <laughs> have an interview with a CIA recruiter on campus, and I went really just to appease my parents who wanted me to, you know, have a stable government job. And <laughs> so I didn't have any expectations. I actually didn't even know it was with CIA mm-hmm. until I was in the room and he shared it with me and said as much. And he told me, you know, this is what the job would be. You would be traveling, you know, you'd be headquarters based, but you'd be traveling frequently to Africa. You would get to use your language capabilities. And I was really excited. And I went through the process fairly quickly. Um, you know, of course, you do the whole security clearance and background investigation, um, which can take quite a while. But because I was, you know, in college and mm-hmm. didn't have a lot of life experience, it was rather quickly for me. And I was in the door within four months. So it was quite the whirlwind. And, um, you know, having the time of my life in this career. And so yeah, it was a fantastic career. And I just yeah fell into it, mostly because of my language capabilities. Can you talk to us a little bit about the difference between the DI, the Director of Intelligence and Director of Operations? Sure. So, you know, it all plays into the intelligence cycle. And so you have the Directorate of Operations who they're actually going out and collecting the intelligence. And as part of that, they're recruiting assets who are agreeing to a clandestine relationship with the CIA so Mm. that we can collect foreign intelligence that's relevant to the U.S., And so they collect that information and then it comes back to headquarters and there are people like me who analyze and go through that information and come up with analytic assessments so that we know what's going on in those countries. And so, you know, the, it's funny because my husband was director of operations and we have this like ongoing debate in our house about like, which is more exciting and cooler. And obviously the, the operation side is what you see, you know, depicted in Hollywood films. And, but you know, that's very flashy and that's not what it actually looks like. We like to say that if you're pulling out your gun or someone chasing you or you're, you know, you're chasing someone else, you've done something terribly wrong. So, you know, the clandestine side of the house, it should, you know, be exactly how it sounds. It should be clandestine. It should be done in the shadows, right under the noses of foreign governments. They shouldn't know what's happening, right? And so then the analytics side of the house is much more writing and briefing and, you know, having that deep expertise. When you're, you know, meeting with assets, you have, you're kind of more of a mile wide inch deep on a lot of topics because you might meet with an asset today on, you know, Kenyan politics, but tomorrow you might be talking about the Middle East or some Mm -hmm. other, you know, or counterterrorism or, you know, there are all these different topics. And so you have to be very nimble as an operations officer to speak to all these topics. Whereas when you're an intelligence analyst, you often have an area that you dive very deep um, for the expertise. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's fantastic. So one thing that I've not discussed much on this podcast, I don't think it actually at all, is about sort of leading a normal life whilst working for the CIA. And obviously leading a normal life is about having sort of romantic relationships, raising a family, which is something you don't see James Bond doing, but you may see a bit of Jack Ryan doing that. Um, <laughs> so what it, it must be incredibly hard as a CIA officer to be able to lead a sort of normal life and potentially have a family and things. Can you talk to us a little bit about sort of, you know, how you lived a normal life whilst being in the CIA. Sure. You know, it's a it's an interesting place because when you're living that lifestyle, so much of your mm. life is there, whether it's at headquarters, whether it's at the field station. And so the people that you surround yourself with are often other CIA people yeah. because, you know, you don't want to have to be squirrely with friends outside of the agency about what you're doing. And you kind of like speak each other's language and you, you start to feel like you're in this bubble. And I mean, especially if you're at headquarters, you don't have your phone all day long. You don't have access to all 
all the social media that most people do. You know, most people are tied to their phones and Twitter mm. and Instagram mm. stories all day long. But when you're at headquarters, you know, cut off from that, you don't have that. And so you're connecting with the people who you're spending the majority of your day with. And so as I was there, you know, most of my friendships were with people in the building. And so then a lot of my dating relationships as well were people in the building. And it made it easier in a lot of ways. But I also, you know, and I mentioned this in in my book, Licensed Parent, that I got burned several times because you have these kind of hotshot young operations officers who are wanting to practice their tradecraft on you, even though they <laughs> oh, know no. it's a big no-no. <laughs> and they're, you know, all these James yeah. Bond wannabes. Yeah. You know, people join the agency for a lot of different reasons, but you definitely, I definitely came into contact with the James Bond wannabes. You know, one of my first dates with one guy was on the back of his motorcycle and took me to a gun range. And, you know, I just feel like that's the kind of thing that should be discussed <laughs> beforehand. That was not my idea of a romantic first date. It was not my cup of tea. Um, so you, I encountered a lot of interesting and eccentric individuals because you have to remember, you know, these are people who are choosing to recruit assets for a living. They're choosing a risky lifestyle. And so there is a particular psychological profile of the people who are selected to go into the director of operations and to be clandestine and service officers. And so you do find a lot of eccentric folks. Yeah. And I had sworn off dating um, anyone at the agency uh, right before meeting my husband, Ryan. I, I said, you know, I'm not dating any more ops officers and I will never marry one. But lo and behold, you know, he proved me wrong. And I will say that CIA is actually a very family-friendly organization. There are a lot of tandem couples. Um, the agency can be really great about accommodating, you know, they'll – uh, married couples will decide which spouse is, you know, doing the leading spouse on this tour, and the other one will mm, be the trailing mm. spouse. And so they'll pick a tour, like, okay, you're getting the main job, and then I'll get an accommodation, you know, something else in station. And then they'll switch. Okay, now it's your turn for your career to take the lead. And they're really great about those relationships. And also, kids have fantastic opportunities when their parents are doing these overseas tours because they can go to international schools and they're getting exposure to the world. And we think that it's actually very family friendly. And we would have stayed, you know, we both left and transition to the private sector. But that was really just nature of our personal experience. At the time, we could not do another overseas tours with my husband's three kids from his previous yeah. uh, marriage. You know, we had to be stateside. And so for that reason, we decided to leave and put down roots in the Northwest, um, which has been really great. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise we would have stayed. It's very family friendly in our opinion, but it comes with its unique, yeah. <laughs> unique complexities for sure. Yeah, definitely. One question on that. I didn't get the impression from your book, but I may be wrong that you lived as a family abroad on on assignment but i know some people have what are the sort of logistics of of as a family living in a foreign country whilst involved in espionage so my husband did several tours with mm. his kids and i think um like i said there are so many pros to that because your kids are getting to be in international schools and they are getting these international experiences which i yeah, like to tell yeah. we call them the bigs and the littles you know our teenagers who had had that i like to tell them you had all these experiences that the littles will never have you know they got to live in these amazing places in Europe. Um, but yeah, the logistics, I mean, people do it regularly. I mean, of course, you have the same um, obstacles in terms of planning meetings. A lot of operational meetings are done in the evening, but you'll find that whether you're um, stateside or international. But, you know, obviously much of CIA's work is international. And, um, you know, I think it's the same kind of um, work-life balance problems that, you know, a lot of people have, and you just have to make 
family a priority no matter where you are. Yeah. One other question. The CIA, it sounds like, as you're saying, is a very family-friendly organization. Unlike the private sector, where sometimes as a woman, women can get penalized for wanting to have a family, you didn't feel that or didn't sort of feel your career in any way was affected by by those choices. So I was a stepmom when I was still at the CIA. And so mm. I didn't, and, I, and they weren't, you know, young babies. So I didn't experience the newborn stage. I didn't um, give birth until I had joined the private sector. So I can't speak firsthand about that. Um, but I do have several friends who have had children and are still there. And a lot of them have gone part time and come back to full time. And it's very flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been impressed with um, some of their policies in that regard. And I think it's it's worked well, I know, for a lot of my um, former colleagues and close friends. You've written this a fantastic book where you're kind of using CIA skills to to raise uh, hopefully very, um, you know, sort of wise children. And I want to sort of just chat with you through the book, really, and go through some of these sort of tools that you recommend and sort of how they came about. The first skill you mentioned in your book is about being prepared to survive the everyday to most extreme circumstances. Can you talk to us a little bit about about this and, um, and, and why you think that's important? Sure. You know, a lot of what we're discussing in Licensed to Parent are these skills, like you said, to make your kids wise. Mm. It's to make them well-rounded and more security mm. conscious. And the end goal is that we're wanting to set our kids up for success in the world so that they can be self-sufficient without us. And so we want to give them autonomy where we can and help them build these skills up. And so one of the ways that we do that is by giving them, you know, skills from the very physical skills when we think of protecting themselves from danger to then the interpersonal skills like communication and persuasion, which we'll talk about as well. Um, But yeah, the Be Prepared is the first chapter in part two of the book. Part one is more memoir of how Mm. I got to the CIA, Mm. like we've discussed. And then part two gets into these tangible skills. But you still get a lot of these, you know, anecdotes and illustrations of what it looks like in our family. And so the idea behind Be Prepared is preparing our kids for these emergency scenarios with the mindset of this is probably not going to happen. Statistically, this should not happen. This is a very rare instance, but we are giving our kids a preparation mindset, not a paranoid mindset. Now, it's a really important distinction. We're preparing them in fun, adventurous ways so that they have skills to survive, but they're not scared and it's, it's it becomes empowering. And so we mm, talk about mm. it in terms of, you know, the CIA prepares its officers for just about any situation. And of course, you know, those are things that can happen. You know, you can be posted at an overseas um, location when a coup breaks out or a terrorist attack happens, right? So obviously the CIA is training for these circumstances because they have happened to officers, right? And so they're preparing them for worst case scenarios, hoping that whatever they encounter will be easier. And so we do the same with our kids, but it's really important that we do it organically so that they're not scared and we don't, you know, do it all in one week or all in one day. It's just kind of sprinkled throughout their lives. And we start Mm. when they're two or three years old and and one of the first ways that we introduce it is with an adventure bag. And, you know, that's what ultimately evolves into a go bag that every adult should have. And that's an important point I like to make about the book, too, is that mm. these are all skills that everyone should have, regardless of if you're a parent. Oh, I agree. I mean, I think actually it's a very interesting uh, 
um, it's not only a very interesting insight into sort of CIA mindset and trying to think like a real spy, but it's quite a good self-help book. There's some things in there that I was just thinking, yeah, I probably should brush up on some of these things. Right, yeah. yeah I've actually booked an archery lesson as well now. Oh, I love so. it. I love it. You know, because you can't even pass these skills down to your kids if you don't first learn them yourself. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there's something that there's something for everyone in here. And you can kind of take what works for you and leave the rest if you're not comfortable with some of these things with your kids as, yeah. you know, folks can see as they read through the book that I was skeptical of some of Ryan's techniques and I've gotten on board with probably most of them, but we don't <laughs> always see eye to eye and, and we're very transparent about that. I think that's part of, you know, parenting with a partner is that, you know, there's a little give and take. <laughs> um, yeah, so be prepared. So we start with these adventure bags and that's something that we involve our kids in. We actually sit them down at the kitchen table and go through each item one by one. Mm. Oh, you've got your own Band-Aids. You have a glow stick in here. Oh, you know, here's a little flashlight, a little whistle. And you get them excited and you get them used to carrying it. And it's that sense of it's their responsibility. You're going on a hike, they're carrying it. The most five-year-old is really into Indiana Jones. And so it's his Indiana Jones bag. And so you think of ways that, you know, resonate. What do your kids like? How can you Mm. make this sound like something exciting to them so that they'll take ownership over it? And then as they get older, it evolves into that more sophisticated, sophisticated go bag that everyone should have. We equip all of our cars with them as well. And so I go through that in the book. But I also talk about skills like getting back to basics, making sure our kids know, you know, directions, how to read maps, you know, landmarks, you know, things like that. Because, and we talk more in depth about technology as well later on, but we rely so much on technology. Our kids need to know how to improvise when it fails because it will fail. Oh yeah. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, we're at the stage where a lot of time, a lot of people don't even remember people's phone numbers anymore, mm. right? Because you're not picking up a phone and typing it in. You're just, yeah. it's on your cell phone. It's it's so wild to think about it, you know, because I think about growing up and I'm typing in phone numbers and saying, you know, mm. is Jenny there? Can I talk mm. to her? You know, it's mm. like, so I encourage people to make sure their kids at least know their phone numbers, a few emergency phone numbers to memorize um, because we can't rely on those cell phones. And so learning how, also this idea of learning how to improvise. You know, we start talking about that in the Be Prepared chapter, but it's really woven throughout the book is this idea of being able to think on your feet, improvise based on whatever the situation requires. And in order to do that, you need to think critically. And that's something that's emphasized at CIA. And I think we should emphasize it so much for our kids. We want them to think for themselves. We want them Mm. to think critically. Mm. And in emergency scenarios, we want them to be able to improvise because things don't go as planned. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So talk to us about getting off the X and how to spot and avoid danger, because that's that's a very interesting area. Yeah, you know, that's um, one of the most important concepts for our kids. And it's one that we start very early. And, you know, it's taught at the CIA. And it's this idea of the X is danger. It can be a person, a place, a thing, anything um, where danger rears its ugly head and you, your gut is telling you to run. And I think as people, sometimes we have a tendency of being a little bit curious, wanting to see you go closer, see what that is up ahead, or we can freeze. And so we talk about this idea with our kids because we want them to know, we want it to be ingrained in them that when yeah. there's danger, they go. Because the yeah. first option is to run. Not in a cowardly way, but in a you are moving away from danger. Because the longer you stay on the X, the more likely it is that you will be harmed. And 
so we go through ways, you know, concepts with our kids to help them be prepared, help them to identify this. We talk to them about visualizing escape routes. When they get to places, they should know where all their exits are. They should think, if I had to get out of here quickly, how would I go, right? And it doesn't have to be, again, in this paranoid way. It can just be in a very calm, you know, okay, getting a lay of the land, being aware of my surroundings, you know, so that you're not freezing. But it's also things like listening to alarms and warning signals, you know, up to 90% of the evacuees from the World Trade Center uh, on 9-11 delayed their departure, sometimes up to 30 minutes. And we have this tendency as people to, oh, wait, are you leaving? Is that a real? Is that a mm-hmm. drill? Oh, let me mm-hmm. save my work real quick. Hold on, I'm going, right? But we want our kids to respond to things, even when they think they're drills, with a sense of urgency. And so we emphasize that to our kids. And then, you know, lastly, we also talk to them about, you know, when it comes to getting off the X, that might mean that you need to ignore an authority figure. And that can be a really difficult lesson to teach to kids, particularly for me right now, because I have a three and four year old. And so our conversations are more about who's the boss? Mommy's the boss. <laughs> so it's a little yeah. it's a little bit of a nuance that we'll start to work on as they get older, because yeah. right now I just need them to listen. Yeah. Right. But as they get older, you can weave in this nuance so that they understand that if it's an emergency situation, we want them to listen to their gut. And so in the book, I use the example of the 2014 Korean ferry boat disaster, where 304 of the 476 passengers and crew died. And many of those who perished were kids. And the voice over the intercom was telling them to stay put when the ship was going down. Those who didn't listen to the authoritative voice saying, do not leave your room, are the ones who survived. And so when we think about, you know, if our kids, God forbid, are in a scenario like that, we want them to be able to say, I don't think I should stay in my room. You know, I'm going to go. It's okay that this voice is telling me to stay. This isn't Mm. right. Like, we're going to die here, right? And so, you know, we we recognize with that example, there are lots of different cultural implications at play, and there are going to be different perspectives based on where people are in the world and views of hierarchy and stuff. And so I don't mean to, you know, simplify it too much, you know, in that regard. I want to be respectful of that. Uh, But it's, you know, as an example to just show that, You know, kids, again, need to think critically and think about what is the best thing to do? How can they get off the X? And even if that means the person in charge, you know, is telling them something that they feel in their gut is wrong. Yeah. Well, I think listening to your guts are important. I mean, I had a personal experience, um, I suppose it was about 20 years ago now. Um, I was looking after a a couple of neighbors' houses who were away on holiday and at nine o'clock, one of the alarms went off. And this was quite a frequent thing. This alarm was always going off and, you know, the neighbor, uh, it might have had a fault. We're not sure. So I went and responded, assuming, oh, it's a fault. But as I got to the house, for some reason, something inside me said, don't go in. Just don't go in. Uh-huh. Just alert the police and, you know, and, yeah. and obviously call the neighbor who's on holiday. So I did. I called the police and it turned out there were actual burglars in there. Um, and they'd been in there for some time and kind of took all the jewelry from the house. And so wow. I could have inadvertently walked in on yes. these burglars and... I don't know, you know. Oh, wow. That's such a great story. I mean, I feel terrible for your friends, but I'm glad yeah. you're safe. And that's, Thank you. <laughs> but that's a perfect example. Yeah. That is a perfect example. And it's 
really just getting our kids in tune mm. with, you know, that ability. And we use a couple examples in the book. Like we use the the Liam Neeson movie Taken, mm. where the two gals are leaving from the airport and the, the guy's talking to them. And, you know, the one friend is giving more details about where they're staying yeah. and that they're alone. And you actually can see it on the other one's face. Like she she can you can see that hesitancy and you can see it right there. That's her gut telling her this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be sharing this information. Right. And so we look for examples like that illustrations to show our kids because this can be kind of a hard thing to explain. It's this intangible feeling. And so we love to use examples for movies, whether it's for this or whether it's, you know, defending yourself. Um, You know, when we talk about the fragility of the human body, we like to just pause the movie. And if it's our older kids, you know, it can be a movie like that. And we can just talk through it and say, look at the look on her face. What is she Mm. feeling? What do you see? And then, of Mm. course, with our younger kids, there's a great example in Finding Nemo where, you know, Dory and Marlin are swimming through the trench and they encounter all of the jellyfish and Dory had actually said beforehand something's telling me we shouldn't swim through the trench of course it's because she has short-term memory loss and someone told her not to right but this is a great example of her gut was telling her not to swim through the trench Marlin ignored it you know and they swam through and then they were in danger and so that's a great example for younger kids because of course everyone needs to choose you know what's appropriate for their own kids yeah yeah indeed indeed so um the next bit's about looking without looking and how to be aware of your surroundings and i don't know if you know i did a film about the technique of dry cleaning um and so there's a quite a bit of that in that film i'll have to send you the link if you've not seen it but (laughs) but yeah tell us a little bit about sort of looking without looking and being aware of our surroundings Yeah, so I talk about surveillance detection routes at CIA and, Mm. you know, what that means is you're basically making sure no one is following you on your way to your asset meeting because the people who are choosing to meet with us and share foreign intelligence are often doing so at great risk to their own lives and their families' lives. And so it's so crucial that you make sure that no one is coming with you. You're not bringing any friends along, as we like to say. And um, so I talk about the ways that we do that. We do it in, you know, you're looking like you're running errands and, you know, doing all these planned stops so that you look like a normal person so that you not don't look alerting. So I talk about that tradecraft and where that comes from and then the way it relates to our kids. And a lot of it has to do with making our kids more aware of their surroundings so that they can be more confident to see Mm. other things, right? Mm. And so one of the things I talk about in this chapter is how Ryan teaches our kids to drive. And he actually takes them out when they first get their permit and spends two hours going reverse. That's all they do. And the idea (laughs) being that if you can drive in reverse, you can drive even better forward. And he did a lot of reverse driving at the farm, the CIA's operational training facility. And, you know, that's one of the ways that we do it. And it's this idea of like I said, getting them more aware of what they're what they've been missing around mm, them. Mm. And, you know, we talk about with our littles, we start teaching them to identify makes and models of vehicles from an early age. And that was something that happened naturally with my son. He was just really interested in them. My daughter has also started doing it as well. But I think each kid kind of picks up these things at different ages and at different levels of interest. But it started when my son Ari actually he was at the car maintenance place. Um, my husband was taking our car to get the oil changed and he was paying inside at the service counter and Ari started crying and pointing out the window and he was only two years old and you know didn't have a ton of language at the time and 
And my husband looks, he, he doesn't know what's going on. And he realizes he sees someone driving away in a black Cadillac Escalade. Well, we had a black Chevy Suburban. So not the same, but a big black SUV yeah, into yeah, a two-year-old yeah. who's still learning. You know, it was pretty close, pretty good. And he thought someone was stealing our car. And so yeah. he is crying and pointing to daddy that someone is stealing the car. And, you know, he assured him, no, our car, you know, pointed, no, it's over there. And so that was actually what started. We realized, okay, let's start pointing these out. And we started by, you know, looking at our own cars, right? Because that becomes easy for kids to spot their own cars on the road. Oh, there's daddy's car. There's, you know, their sister's car. Then then you kind of go from there. And the idea being that if something were to happen, we want our kids to be able to remember those cars. So in espionage, you want to know the cars because you want to be able to, you know, mm. confirm your surveillance, right? And identify yeah them. But in real life, we want our kids to be able to give a description to the police if something were to happen. So for example, here in the US, um, it's been probably a couple weeks, maybe even a month at this point. But there was a road rage incident that I had read about in the news. And there were multiple, it was a family and there were multiple kids in the car. And they were being shot at. And the 11 year old actually memorized the license plate of the other vehicle. And based on that alone, that is how the police were able to arrest, find and arrest the suspect, which is really amazing to be in that kind of pressure and have that skill. And so that's something that we work on with our older kids, you know, is looking at license plates and then also physical descriptions of people. Um, You know, I talk about an incident in the book um, where there was a, a shady character circling me and my two youngest kids um, at the park. And, you know, in that instance, I think, you know, going back to technology, a lot of people, what they want to do initially is pull out their phone, call someone for help or get a video of someone or something that's going on. But if someone were to take your kids, like that's, they're gone. Like that's not going to help you as much, right? Like I would rather people be on high alert with all their faculties than trying to get a phone out to Mm. get a video or text someone or call someone, right? Yeah. So in this instance where this person was, was circling us and I was getting very scared for my kids, I, I made the decision to keep my phone in my pocket and just, you know, encourage the kids because they were, gosh, I think two and three at the time, and just said, you know, kids that age, it's hard for them to do transitions really quickly if they don't know that they're about to leave the park. And so you can end up with like a flailing tantrum if all of a sudden you're springing on them, we're leaving, you know, yeah. in the middle of a fun bike ride. And so I just said, oh, gosh, you know, we, we need to run back to the, the car. I have something for you in there. And um, and so my older son, you know, he's riding a bike along, you know, himself. I had him stay close to me. And the other one, I just picked her up. She was on a little balance bike and carried her. And I used those um, skills that I had learned at the agency to get a mental, physical description of the person to the best of my abilities. Like, don't bother with a cell phone. Just kind of file it away. Get a good look. Get somewhere safe, right? So got the kids in the car, um, locked all of us in before I buckle. Usually I buckle them in from, from the parking lot. I'll yeah. lean in like most parents yeah. do. But I actually got in, locked us all in, and then buckled them in while I was, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the car. And I later called the police. And sure enough, this was a very nefarious individual who was a known drug addict. And, you know, do I know what his intentions were with me and the kids? No. But what I do know is that my gut was telling me, this is an unsafe person. He's circling yep. us. We feel yep. uncomfortable. Yeah. I'm not going to lean on my cell phone. I'm just going to get a description so that I can call the police, right? So we want people to think of it that way and to just get used to seeing things and um, remembering things. And as you become more of your surroundings, you are surprised at what you start to see and what yeah. you didn't see before. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's like this skill that you can keep training to um, and you get better and better at, at the more you kind of turn it on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One practice I do when I'm in an area where I'm a bit lost in the city and I want to just check my phone or something, just to check Google Maps, I go in 
into a shop and do it and um just so then I, i'm off the street and i'd also if somebody is watching me and looking for somebody's uncertain of themselves you know because they're the kind of perfect target at least yeah, being in the exactly. shop you're out of the way for a bit yeah, that's um, great. That's mm, a great tactic. And I like mm. to, you know, when I am traveling, you know, when we're traveling for the agency, it's often low tech, you know, mm, we, we mm. often don't have our cell phones on us. And so that kind of forced me to get into this habit of studying maps beforehand, right? Because when you're studying your surveillance detection route, you're studying the map, the route, you know, all the streets, all the turns, all the times that you're going to be in each location. And so you learn kind of with that, that old school mentality. Yeah. And so I've carried that over into my personal travel as mm, well, mm. because I mean, you might not be committing espionage, but yeah, you can be a target of a thief or, you know, because if you look distracted, um, you know, that makes you more vulnerable. And so getting used to, I like to really study a city beforehand. I don't have that like innate sense of direction. Mm. Um, my husband does. My son does. Actually, both of my sons do. Um, I'm more of a, I have to study the map. Like if I get a visual lay of the land in my head beforehand and study the map, I'm great. But without that, like I know, and I think so So much of this is knowing your own strengths, knowing your kids' mm. strengths, mm. Um, because I know that I can't just be like dropped in somewhere and kind of like find my way yeah. naturally by what makes sense. Like I need landmarks. I need to study the map. And so these are these basic skills that we want to give our kids so that we're preparing them as well. Yeah, yeah. No. We're going to move on to defending yourself and what to do if danger finds you. And just one disclaimer for listeners in the UK, carrying knives is illegal um, and any defensive weapon, unfortunately. So there we go. Yeah, or fortunately, yeah. depending on which that way is, you look at yeah. it. <laughs> that is an important disclaimer because I yeah. will say that when Ryan was in the UK, yeah. after we left the agency, um, we were both in the private sector, he got detained at the oh, airport <laughs> because he had a... Um, um, it wasn't even a knife. It was a tactical pen. Yeah. Oh, those things. I've seen them online. And I bought it for him. <laughs> so I I didn't even know. Like, I yeah. bought it for him. It's just, a, it's a really hardy pen and it yeah. can, in theory, be used as a weapon. And so, sure enough, I mean, it, he called me in the middle of the night and he said, you know, I'm in secondary and, and I'm being detained. And I'm like immediately <laughs> thinking like, oh my gosh, like, we yeah. don't work for the government anymore. Like, we don't have diplomatic passports. Yeah. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and so he missed his flight had to get a different flight and but yeah so that was how i actually did not know that until he went through that experience so that was really interesting um so important disclaimer and i think um a lot of these um techniques still apply oh, yeah, one yeah. of the um one of the points that we make in the book in this chapter specifically is that something doesn't have to be a weapon it's this idea of being able to use what's around you mm. um if the event calls for it. it can be a chair it can be a lamp right it's it's it goes back to the idea of improvising right very um, jason using, Bourne, isn't it yeah <laughs> Use <a laughs> there book. you go that's right that's right yeah. as long as it's a very heavy one yes <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, you know, and so this gets back to this idea of, you know, hopefully our kids are not ever in this mm. scenario. Mm. We want them to get off the X. If they're in a situation where they have to fight for their life, that means they didn't get off the X. Um, we talk about it in terms of um, something you hear a lot in um, – training, um, active shooter training in the corporate world. It's this run, hide, fight scenario. You know, run would be get off the axe. If you can't get off the axe, you would hide. And as a very last case scenario, you would mm. fight. And, you know, if our kids ever are in that scenario, we want them to be prepared. And so some of the ways that we do this is, you know, we emphasize the fragility of the human body. Because I do think that through Hollywood and all of these examples, it's so easy for our kids to get a very unrealistic idea of 
how much a person can take. I mean, there are these fight scenes of someone taking on multiple people and, you know, or someone two or three times their size. And so this is, again, another example where we'll pause the movie and say, listen, this person would not survive this. I mean, you see instances in the news of someone dying from one punch, you know, like it's we want our kids to recognize that they don't want to be in this situation, right? And so that's one of the ways that we do it. We talk about, you know, um, how we introduce some of those um, tools that can later be used as well to defend themselves. And Ryan has a great section in this chapter. So in all of these, I should say for the listener, in all of these chapters in part two, um, my husband Ryan has an aside, um, a sidebar in each chapter of the skills. And so you get to hear from him and his perspective, whether it's um, a story from his time at the farm and going through operational training or, you know, an actual story recruiting an asset overseas. You're hearing from him how he's gone about it. And we have a very different, you know, writing style and approach. And so I think it, it's really fun and brings some color to the book. And in this chapter, he talks about how and why he introduces knives as tools and then later as weapons to the kids. And I'm very transparent about the fact that this is one of the things that I was really just not on the same page with him about mm-hmm. when we first mm-hmm. met. And I saw him doing some these things with the kids. I just thought I'm really not comfortable with kids having any sort of pocket knife or whittling, whether it's whittling or anything. Like this was crazy to me. And over time, you know, I've seen how he introduces them and he has this approach of doing it slowly and teaching mm. them the rules. And, mm. you know, the first thing they do is, you know, whittle a stick to roast marshmallows on, you know, and this idea is that when they're learning these things with supervision and with rules and guidelines, they understand how to handle them. So they're not in a situation where they encounter one somewhere without supervision and they don't know how to handle it, right? And so we talk about um, pocket knives. We talk about archery. Archery yeah. comes up a lot in the book, um, not because the CIA uses bow and arrow <laughs> on its operations. <laughs> well, actually, although- one CIA agent had one, but she didn't use it. I, uh, you're a friend of yours, in fact. Yeah, but, Sarah, uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah. She teaches um, yeah. her kids archery as well, which is really fun. <laughs> Um, although I don't know, maybe I'm trying to think of in a Jason Bourne movie if you've ever. Uh, I don't not. know if he has actually, um, <laughs> but no, he usually uses. Uh, <laughs> would make for really chair. interesting. <laughs> so, like we need to get in touch with like the Jack Ryan producers. Yeah. Like they really yeah. need to add something here. No, <laughs> so it's not because they use it. It's it's really because it's one more example of how we want to make our kids well rounded. Mm. And so this whole idea of being well rounded gives them something to talk about with these assets. And and we'll get to that when we talk more about you me same same later. But so archery is one of those things. And it can also be used if they needed to do self-defense. That's one of the many skills that we give our kids. But also it can be used in a survival context if they were would need to hunt for food. And it's just a really great skill set. And it's another tool, um, you know, quite, you know, a literal tool and like a tool in their metaphorical toolbox. Um, and our kids just really enjoy it. And so that's something that they do. And they also do sword fighting. Um, it's something that they start really young. I mean, my son was sword fighting with a wooden sword at two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that I would recommend wooden swords like we've done for <laughs> It's that young. Maybe there foam are, ones. Yeah, there are foam ones. There are yeah. lots of different options. And then actually, as the kids get older, um, there are like heavier um, mm. plastic practice swords. Um, and Ryan will do that with the teenagers, mm. with the bigs. Mm. Um, and they get into some like pretty fun and intense um, sword fights, which is exciting to see because now they're kind of our, our 16-year-old son is really giving him a run for his money. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fun to see them progress and get better at dad. So <laughs> Ryan's dad. raised his nemesis. <laughs> That's right. One one quick question actually just pops in my mind. Um, sometimes, you know, children, teenagers sometimes end up in fights and things. 
have you talked to him about those kind of scenarios and you know not not letting uh, not getting red mist and things like that you know yeah you know we um we start teaching them like this idea of sparring when they're toddlers and that's something that it's funny because when i used to see ryan do that with the bigs when they were younger i always thought it was just kind of this fun wrestling like playful yeah. thing that he was doing i had no idea that he was actually preparing them if they were ever in that situation showing them how to block how to defend themselves um so that's something we talk about quite a bit i mean my mm. son mm who's only four now has already encountered experiences on the playground where someone has hit him repeatedly in the face. And so going back to that and teaching him, you know, how to block, how to defend themselves, what to do in that scenario. Yeah, we do talk about it. And unfortunately, it starts really young. I wish it didn't have to. Um, he's going off to preschool this fall. And so I'm <laughs> we're going to be, you know, emphasizing that the blocking and stuff a, a lot more <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. reminding him of all these skills because he's going to have a lot more autonomy come fall. It'll be easier for him yeah. than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Kids and teenagers can be cruel sometimes, and it's yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. You see yeah. some, yeah, some crazy <laughs> things. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, let's move on to finding common ground. So you ch you call this chapter "You Me Same Same." So uh, talk to us a little bit about this. And there's a really cool scuba diving story, isn't there, from Ryan in this chapter? Yeah. So this is this idea of when you are recruiting an asset. You want to get that second meeting, yeah. you know, when you first meet them, you want to build a relationship with them through the common interests that you share. And a lot of ops officers do this by sort of putting on an interest. They do the research on the target beforehand. They find out, oh, the target really likes this, so I'm going to really like this. Yeah. But when it works really well and in the best cases, it's when you find something that you actually genuinely like too, right? And the easiest way to do that is if you're someone who has a lot of interests. And so one of the things that drew me to Ryan when I met him was how well-rounded he was. You know, he's someone who bakes bread from scratch. He speaks multiple languages. He plays multiple instruments. You know, he's very well-traveled. He can speak to all of these different um, topics genuinely, right? Mm. And so when Ryan uh, recruits an asset, he's able to do it just in this much more genuine way than I had ever seen before. And I have seen other ops officers do it like him as well. And I'm sure that there are many more who I didn't encounter. But I just remember it being such a breath of fresh air to see someone, you know, yes, you might be an alias, but you're finding a way to actually build a real friendship with someone. Now you can argue like, well, I mean, there's still manipulation involved. There's always manipulation involved in espionage, right? Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's finding that yeah. common ground. And so that's one of the things that we think is really important for our kids. And so we look mm. for ways to make them well-rounded and to teach them to um, have these conversations with people because it's this idea that life is all about relationships. And when we can build a connection with someone, you know, through this you, me, same, same technique, we can build rapport, we can build trust, and that is going to help us have more successful relationships throughout life. And so that can be, you know, friendships, romantic relationships, professional relationships later. Yeah, Ryan shares this example of this um, target that the CIA station was going after and you know they learned all this all the stuff about the target and one of the things was that this person enjoyed scuba diving mm. and so ryan had always wanted to do it and so of course he was in a position where yeah. he was able to do so <laughs> i mean that's not always how life goes but yeah. he was able to take up this hobby and you know joined the the scuba diving club yeah. and formed a relationship and during that time you know he didn't once ask the target about his job even though that's mm. what he was interested in he was really mm. just focused on getting to know him letting him talk um and so yeah it's a it's a really great um 
great approach. And I think it's it's one that really helps our kids. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's brilliant. And I think having a wide range of interests is is a, a very good life skill because I think um, so. a lot of people seem to be quite so insular and closed down these days, I find. So it's very hard to have a conversation with some people and it's just because they don't really have many interests and it's, it's very hard that. So Yeah. yeah you know, it's funny mm. because when I met Ryan, I was coming from, you know, Washington, D.C. Um, we met in a field station and I was used to kind of this Washington dc mentality which was you are who you are is what you do you know they're Mm. they're the same thing they're completely interchangeable and so you know people would ask me what my hobbies were and you know i had gone from someone who had been solely working on africa and i very much identified as an africanist and that was you know my work it was my passion it was who i was and all of a sudden i was doing you know clandestine operations i was working on a lot of different things i couldn't talk about my work anymore and i had this moment of like oh my gosh you know what do what am I interested in? And so I, you know, was taking a page from Ryan's book and, you know, he was so well-rounded and I started getting some of these hobbies as well. But I talk about in the book how I've kind of gone through these periods of identity of, you know, finding these hobbies to make myself well-rounded. And then of course, experienced it again after, you know, birthing my son. And I think a lot of women experience this when you become a mother because you feel like you lose so much of yourself. And so I think it is so important that as parents, we still take time to add, you know, interests and and hobbies and things and carve that out and lean on our partners or friends or whatever our support network is so that we can get that time for ourselves because we're also modeling it for our kids. I think it's really important for our kids to see that no matter how old you are, you should still be trying new things and adding things to your repertoire. You know, this past year, I learned how to wake surf and (laughs) um, well, we'll say I'm learning how to wake surf, still still working on it, you know, and showing showing the kids that, you know, I'm going to try this new thing too. I've never done it before. You know, I took an Mm. ice skating class and yeah. you know just kind of things like that that you're just adding and finding things that you're interested in I think it can change over time and you develop new interest with age as well yeah. and yeah. you know when we model so much of these principles I think are most effective when we model them for our kids mm. Mm. So the next chapter, which is about the pen is mightier than the sword. And I kind of got the impression that this was definitely your chapter because uh, it felt <laughs> a bit longer than the others. But <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> that was this is where I really like dug in. Yeah. It's I do like to say this chapter is a bit of a slog. Like I, and I do realize that it was very fun for me to write. But I view this chapter as much more of a reference chapter. Oh, there's some great things in there, to be honest. I think I think so many kids would definitely and parents would benefit from that because I know when I was younger, my parents we never sat down and talked about skills of writing and things yeah. like that. And honestly, you yeah. kind of pick it up as you go along. So this is brilliant. It's taken for granted. It's it's absolutely mm. taken for granted. I like to say that I did not learn how to write until I was at the CIA. I thought I knew how to write, and I just look back and I think, oh my gosh, like terrible terrible. Um, And so I'm thankful for great managers and the agency and their fantastic Mm -hmm. training for (laughs) making me a writer. And now here I am an author. So there you go. Um, (laughs) But what a lot of people don't realize is that so much of espionage includes writing. You know, even if you're an operations officer, you're coming back to, you know, your station or headquarters, wherever you are, um, and writing up your meeting, you're writing up, you know, the intelligence that you collected into an intelligence report, but you're also writing an operational cable about the meeting 
writing itself. Like there's so much paperwork. Um, so even if you're doing the clandestine side of the house, you're not getting away from writing. Um, <laughs> if you're on the Directorate of Intelligence side, which I believe is now called the Directorate of Analysis, it's um, they've since gone through a reorg since I've left. Um, if you're on that side, you know, writing and briefing is really your bread and butter. And it's you are trained, you know, as much as Ryan was trained in, you know, role playing with, you know, asset meetings down at the farm and all those things, right? We were trained in writing and over and over and over and, and role playing with briefings with policymakers. Yeah. And, um, you know, you really do the amount of writing that you do, you become so prolific that you are able to do it with speed. And I think that what is most useful about the writing at the agency as an analyst is the structure. And so I share that in this chapter because I think, you know, I, I experienced it growing up and I've seen my bigs experience it, you know, this old school structure at school, you know, intro, three body pair conclusion and then they're doing these things called like concrete details a cd and a cm and like they're just checking these boxes to make sure they have these things they're not really understanding the structure and what i like to tell my kids is if you've you know outlined a piece and structured it and done the research and done all of the work beforehand the writing should be the fastest and easiest part And so I go through that structure and what that looks like in the book using a fictitious example. And I talk about briefing as well. I mean, these are skills that I honestly believe that my writing capabilities are probably the best thing I took from the agency and one of the most important keys to my success in transitioning to the private sector. And, you know, that's why we want to give our kids these writing skills because it's going to help them in school. It's going to help them in whatever career they take, whether it's, you know, writing something for work or even emails. And it's this concept of bottom line up front. Um, You know, it's getting kids used to this idea of elevator briefings. And so there are a couple different ways that we practice that in our home. We do um, stress and stoked at our dinner table. Some people call it roses and thorns. And we'll go around in the, um, at the dinner table and everyone gets to say, we try to do it once a week, you know, something they're stressed about and something they're stoked about. And it's timed. Like, we're not going to linger on you. So you have to very quickly say what's going on. It's a great way to be in tune with what's going on in your mm. kids' lives. But it's mm. also a perfect way for them to practice concisely sharing what's going on with them. And it gets them used to speaking and having those um, experiences. And so I think the more we can do that, you know, sitting down with our kids, teaching them this structure, giving them these tools so that they can be more successful in school. And it's just, you know, something that they're not getting. I actually already had a teacher reach out to me asking if she could adapt um, some of the chapter for like a handout for her um, high school students for writing. And I just loved that. I was like, oh, absolutely, please. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's brilliant. But I mean, that sharing sounds incredibly useful for mental health as well. I mean, that's, that's brilliant. Especially as we've gone through this pandemic. I mean, it's a great way to stay in tune with our kids. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So talk to us about sort of planting a seed and how to appropriately persuade people to your thinking because I, th- I get the impression this can be a bit of a double-edged sword if you're not careful yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's funny because um I started writing this chapter and as I was writing it I was starting to identify the ways that Ryan had done this with me mm. over the years mm. so I include that but I will say that I am a really structured writer, but when I was writing this book, sometimes I, I was a little bit um, more unstructured than I normally yeah. would be. Yeah. Um, I kind of
kind of let sections go as I would have like a basic structure. And so I wasn't initially planning on including those stories, but I was I was kind of going through like what persuasion <laughs> yeah. looks like. I had this moment of like, wait a minute, how many times has Ryan done this to me? And I share these stories. So the idea behind it is, you know, CIA operations officers have to be very persuasive. They're yeah. convincing people to commit treason against their country so that they can share uh, intelligence with the United States. And so we need for them to trust us and we need for them to believe us. We need to be convincing. The last thing you want to do is pitch an asset for recruitment and have them turn you into their government and all of a sudden you're PNG'd from the country, right? Or worse. Um, (laughs) So persuasion is important. And so we talk about it in terms of this idea of planting a seed, um, using these specific phrases and these subtle ways of knowing when to let things float, when to come back. Um, And so we use a great example of (laughs) when Ryan taught our oldest, Hannah, how to persuade Hunter to get a cheesecake for his birthday cake instead of a chocolate cake. And we were on our way down to my in-laws. He had already had, you know, a family party on his actual birthday. It was like the weekend. And I'm hearing Ryan, um, Hunter was in the back with like headphones on. I'm hearing Ryan tell Hannah, this is what you need to say. You need to make him want cheesecake. You can't tell him directly that he should get cheesecake because then he's not going to do it out of spite, right? You need to be really subtle. You know, use this phrase. They came up with these key phrases like cold glass of milk, things that she was going to like weave into the conversation. And I'm sitting there just like seething because I'm thinking, you're teaching our kids to be manipulative and I really want chocolate cake (laughs) like what's going on you know but I just kind of let it play out and again this is when I was in my role as stepmom and I think a lot of those years I really just let Ryan take the lead because the train had left the station on a lot of these things but I was also trying to find my place in the family and so I'm just kind of observing this happening thinking okay taking notes we're going to address this we're going to talk about this (laughs) later Um, so sure enough Hunter goes into the store with Ryan And, you know, there's like these amazing chocolate cakes, you know, there's even Mm, like a Seahawks mm, cake, mm, mm. Um, (laughs) chocolate cake. I mean, it would have been like, you know, a sure thing any other time. And sure enough, he's, you know, asks, oh, you know, he sees the cheesecake and he says, do you think grandma and grandpa have milk at their place? And like he comes out and we see him like parading out with Ryan and in his hands was a cheesecake. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And so I opened the chapter with that story. And Mm. I think one of the most telling parts about it is that to this day, Hunter still vehemently believes that he wanted cheesecake and it was his idea. And I think that just goes to show you how great of a job Hannah did that he still (laughs) or maybe he's just too stubborn to admit it. Um, So we open with that and we talk about, you know, ways that. Um, we can use these skills. But my initial concerns was, I, you know, were I don't want my kids to be manipulative. Mm, like, what if they mm. use these for nefarious purposes, right? So there were all those concerns there, of course. But I think that I also realized that this can also be so helpful for them in so many ways, whether it's, you know, persuading their coach to get their playing position back, which our other daughter experienced, um, whether it's, you know, persuading someone to your viewpoint in the workplace later or, you know, even in high school, you know, if you're in a class or something, persuading others, if you're in a debate or something like that, there are all these instances that it can be used. And I think with anything, there's always, you know, nefarious ways that that skills can be used. And so the idea is that we are developing a relationship of trust with our kids throughout and we're giving them these skills, but we're providing them guidance and we're uh, having confidence that with the framework, we're giving them that they kind of know the parameters in which to operate and what's acceptable and what's not. 
Yeah, no, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So one, I think, very topical thing is considering the source and how to vet information you gather, because I think, if anything, over the last maybe five years, that's been one of the biggest topics on, on the internet, isn't it? Yeah, we talk about, you know, vetting sources and how it's so important for our kids. And this also goes back to that whole, you know, person of authority. We want our kids to understand that, you know, it's not just whether they're giving orders in an emergency situation. We want them to understand that just because someone's a teacher and they're sharing information, it doesn't mean it's fact, mm. right? It could be their opinion and teaching our kids how to sift through that information and identify where people's biases are playing a part. And, you know, that can play a role with kids and friendships and things that they're hearing about people. And, you know, as we know, I mean, even in our childhood, you know, that kind of stuff happened. But my goodness, the stuff that our kids are dealing with mm, these days mm, with social mm. media, I mean, it's a hard time to be a kid. Yeah, and so yeah. teaching our kids to be wary of information, to consider where it's come from and to, you know, listen to multiple viewpoints, being open to changing their mind. Um, you know, I talk about just a, a silly reference to Daniel Tiger because he has this song about, you know, people do things their own ways. Mm. And, you know, I heard my son uh, Ari saying that about my daughter because she was like putting a hat on backwards. Oh, you know, and, and I would say, oh, do this or fix this. Well, Gigi does it her own way, mommy. And so I said, okay, yeah, that's that's true. But it's funny because kids their age will also like do something that actually is wrong that, you know, you don't want them to do, whether it's, you know, you're trying to like put their shoes on and they have the wrong, you know, the shoe on the wrong foot and you can't get it on and you're trying to explain, yeah, people do things their own way, but like there is an objectively right <laughs> way to yeah, do this yeah. and we got to get your shoes on, right? And so I compare that to like even as adults, Sometimes we will insist on wearing our shoes on the wrong feet, metaphorically speaking, because we aren't willing to open ourselves up to new information yeah, and admit yeah. that maybe we were wrong and now we've learned something new and we need to change our mind. And so one of the ways that we can instill this in our kids is to model it for themselves. You know, think about, you know, was there a way that you were doing something before and you've now discovered a better way? Or yeah. were you driving one way and you've decided, oh, this way is better? Voice that to your kids. Oh, you know what? I used to always drive this way, but, you know, we always get stuck at this traffic light. So I'm going to now do this way. I'm going to try doing something differently, mm, right? And mm. so pointing those little things out to them. Oh, I used to, you know, always use this cup and, and now I'm going to do this one. But, you know, they can be really simple daily life things, but modeling for our kids that, you know, when we get more information about something we can change our mind and that's yeah. okay yeah yeah no that's brilliant and you know it backs up some of the earlier things you're saying as well like when with regards to experiencing new hobbies and having wide interests you learn to you know challenge yourself and, yeah. and ideas are the same really aren't they they're not any different from a physical hobby so yeah, yeah. absolutely i mean i think so much of these skills really do build on mm. you know one another and over time we find that our kids are capable of so much more than we thought and it's because these skills aren't learned in a vacuum they're all kind of working together. Yeah. And so you find that all of a sudden they're able to do these things that you didn't realize because you've been kind of building on all of mm. them at the same time. So yeah, yeah. We'll move into navigating technology and staying safe in an online world. Yeah, you know, I think that that topic is so important, like I was just mentioning, for our kids, you know, growing up in a time of social media. I mean, there are, the stakes are so much higher for them to yeah. make mistakes than, you know, they ever were for, for our generation. And so I, I do worry for them. But I think that the tendency for parents can be to be like at one end of the spectrum or the other. Like the there's the, you know, everything goes and no supervision 
end. And then there's the, you know, hold on tight and don't give them access to anything because it's a slippery yeah. slope. Yeah. And while I do agree it can be a slippery slope, I think that it's so important to expose our kids to technology and to give them autonomy for two main reasons. The first being we want them to be savvy, technologically savvy. I mean, if we want them to be successful in this world, I mean, they, they need to experience it as early as possible. Mm. And two, I think because of the pandemic, it's so important for our kids to have stayed connected over this past year. And it's something to keep in mind because, you know, we've been so isolated. I mean, we're, of course, starting to open up, but it's really been something we've emphasized in our family because we want our kids to be connected to their friends. And we're so Mm. lucky that we live in a time where they can be through technology. So if we're buckling down on things because we're scared about their safety, their online safety, we are depriving them of opportunities to learn so that they can be savvy and also opportunities to connect so that they're not so isolated, right? So those have been kind of the two driving factors that we've really been focused on as a family over the past year and a half as far as technology goes. But, you know, in order to give them some of that independence, we give them some guidelines and, you know, help them understand the lay of the land. And so, you know, one of those main things is making sure our kids understand that they don't overshare information on the internet, especially with people they don't know. And we talk about it in the book in terms of, you know, all of the information that the CIA can glean about a person when they're developing a targeting package to approach them. And a lot of that is open source information. And a lot of that is information they can find on the internet because people post so much about themselves. And as we saw with the scuba diving example, you're finding out hobbies about someone and how you can use those hobbies to get close to them. And so, you know, while our kids aren't going to be recruited for international espionage, (laughs) you know, there are online Mm. predators and there are people Mm. with nefarious intentions. And so making sure our kids understand that whatever information they're sharing or posting could be used um, and in what way I think is really important for them to realize. And, you know, understanding that it's not just posting information that once they're sending something, they have lost control over it. Whether it's one person or two, it is out of their control. They don't know what people are going to do with that information. Um, The other thing that we really like to emphasize with our kids um, as far as technology goes is this idea of guarding their future. 70% of employers review social media before hiring someone. And many of them, I think it's about half, choose not to hire someone based on something they saw on their social Mm. media. And so it's easy to take just that um, statistic and say, okay, well, our kids shouldn't have social media because they're going to ruin their future. But I would hesitate and say, well, the flip side, there are also employers who hire someone because of something positive they saw on social media, right? So there are opportunities to, you know, do good things and portray yourself positively and show how well-rounded you are that can help you with employers. And so, again, we want to make sure that we're giving our kids these opportunities because when we expose them expose them to technology while we're with them, we're here to help them if they make a mistake. And of course, the hope is that we're developing a relationship of trust with our kids so that they will come to us for that guidance if they need it, because we don't want them fumbling when they're out of the house later, um, you know, trying to find their way. We want them to be making the mistakes now so that we can help guide them along the way. So we give them a little bit of a longer leash. It's funny because people will assume that because we were spies, we must, you know, spy on our kids. You know, they they ask us about surveillance apps and different things. How can they check this on their kids or how yeah, can they yeah. do this with their cell phones? And we say, well, actually, we like to give our kids more freedom. And here's what that looks like. You know, and some parents decide to use things, you know, like those surveillance apps like Life360 or whatever, and which is fine if that's what people decide for their family. I think everyone needs to decide what they're most comfortable with. But what I do recommend is if parents do install some type of app like that, 
that they are open and transparent with their kids because nothing is going to erode trust faster than your kids finding out you were spying on them without them knowing, right? So if that's something you want because you're concerned about safety, then let them know, hey, this is going to be on your phone. It's not because I don't trust you. It's because I'm worried about X, Y, Z, and I want to know where you are. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not something we do um, because we rely on all the other skills that we're providing them. And so that gives us more peace of mind about them going out. But I will say that, I mean, as a parent, I think there's always some element of when your kids are out, you're not really resting until they get home for the night, right? And and you know that they're safe. There's always going to be an element of that. But I think that the more we feel that we've prepared them, um, the more at ease we can feel and more confident in their abilities to navigate and find their way back home. Mm -hmm. Taking ownership and how to gain and earn responsibility probably ties in quite nicely with what you've just said there. But uh, yeah, yeah, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, CIA officers are given a lot of responsibility from day one. I mean, I was writing for the President's Daily Brief book my first week at CIA. The Ethiopians had just invaded Somalia. Mm. And, you know, it's a really busy time. And it's really like baptism by fire kind of thing. And um, but it speaks to the fact that they know that not just anyone has walked through their doors, right? They know that they have hired, you know, a high caliber of people and they give you that responsibility off the bat. And there's also you see a lot of that in um, operations as well. I mean, from paying your assets, I mean, you're given a revolving fund of thousands of dollars and you're managing that money, you're paying your assets, you're writing up. I mean, people think CIA is so high tech. I should have mentioned that when we were talking about technology. Often it's like it's old school. (laughs) You know, you're doing receipts and you're taking like a a little three by five index card and you're writing like, you know, paid X amount of money on this date and you give it to the asset. And oftentimes they don't, you know, they're not really going to sign their name because you don't want something with their name. They'll just do some sort of mark and you come back and that's your receipt. Oh, I paid so-and-so $3,000 today and I'm coming (laughs) back with a handwritten index card and somebody's (laughs) trusting me that I actually did that, Yeah, which is wild, right? But it's this idea that you're ultimately going to be turning over the asset, right? Mm. So if you were like pocketing money, eventually it would be, (laughs) you would be discovered, right? So it's this idea of giving that responsibility early on. And so we try to do Mm. the same for our kids. And I noticed that right away with Ryan and his three kids. They were making purchases at young ages. They all had little wallets. And so that's something we introduced with Ari. And he got a money pouch when he was three. And now Gigi has one as well. Mm. And Mm. we encourage them to make their own purchases when we go to the store. And it's a way to teach them about money, but it's also teaching them about responsibility and looking for ways to give them that ability. And, you know, even in terms of, um, you know, if you're at a store having the, or at a restaurant, having them order for themselves, having them speak up, you know, try not to do as much for your kids. Like mm-hmm. step back, mm-hmm. take a pause, think, can they do this themselves? Or do I need, do I really need to be doing this for them? If they're a baby, sure, maybe you do. <laughs> but you know, if they have language, you know, give them an opportunity. You know, you want to go get a to-go box, have, send your kid up to the counter, have them ask for it. Um, and, and it builds confidence when they, when they start to do these things and have these wins, you know, you can see the confidence building and Mm. then they're able to do more and more Mm. Mm. brilliant can you talk to us about protecting your assets and how to keep a promise and live your principles yeah so that gets back to this idea of trust and loyalty and so i've mentioned you know the risk that assets take when they choose to have a clandestine relationship with the cia and that's why it is so important that we protect them in order to do so there has to be trust on both sides and you know i talk about how important it is to do the job with integrity and how you know it's if you think about you know which 
operations officer you're going to trust more? The one who's getting sloppy drunk with you in the club or the one who is very careful about his actions and making sure that you're safe and and not doing that type of behavior with you? Because you'll see both, right? Yeah. And, you know, you want to really nurture that trust. And I talk a lot about how the CIA as an organization, um, you know, we're the good guys. And I remember hearing that in a training class. And I remember hearing the stories of, you know, we take care of our assets mm. long after they're gone. We There are stories of taking care of their families. You know, sometimes assets won't receive their salaries while they're working for the agency, you know, because it would raise flags or, you yeah. know, to get that type of money. And so it will be put away in a special account for them. Sometimes they pass away before being able to receive it and the CIA will track down their next of kin. A lot of times those family members had no idea that they even had a relationship with the CIA. I mean, it would be easy for the agency to yeah. just, you know, not give that money. That must be quite a shock, actually. As a, yeah. a, a funeral or something, somebody yeah. turns up and you've yeah. got a few million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the lengths that CIA goes to to protect its assets who are working for us, but then also just to take care of them and their families in the long mm. run, mm. it... I, there's just so much more that you wish you could say. Um, but of course, some of that is classified. But I mean, it's hard because I think CIA and intelligence, it can be such a controversial topic and it can be very divisive. And there are a lot of you know things that people don't like <laughs> about the organization. But I can tell you firsthand that trust and loyalty are at its core and we take care of our people. And you know it's not the same in other countries. It begs the question, and I do say it in the book, why someone did, would defect to somewhere like, I don't know, Russia. Because well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the same. When you are not of use anymore with information, Information. Mm. You can bet your, you know what, you will not be taken care of in the same way once you are yeah. no longer of use. And so that is, yeah. you know, something really important. And it's one of the the um, principles that we've passed on to our kids. And the way that looks is, you know, with Ryan, he told all of the kids when they turned eight that he worked at CIA. And I remember being blown away that he was trusting an eight-year-old with that information. And even sharing yeah. that story in interviews, I've been accused of saddling my kids with information that makes them unsafe, you know, to which I just say, well, we don't really view it that way. You know, we're not telling them about operations. We're not telling them Mm. identities of people. And it was done in a way that trust and loyalty had been emphasized so much up to that point that Ryan was confident that they wouldn't, you know, share anyone. And it was something that, you know, brought our family closer together. And so some of the ways that we do that is through, you know, some of the practical ways that that looks like is, you know, using the phrase, I promise sparingly. That's something that can be thrown around, Mm. especially with kids, Mm. very Mm. easily. And Mm. so because we use it sparingly, our kids know that when we do say it, it carries weight. And so that means that when we do say it, we have to keep our word. So whatever you need to do to remember it, because sometimes life can get in the way, you know, write yourself a reminder, put an alarm in your phone and make sure, you know, but we are only human. And so when you do fall short, you know, being very transparent with your kids and this idea of apologizing to your kids, you know, that wasn't something I experienced um, growing up. Um, as a child experiencing, I don't know if it's generational, if mm. it's location wise, mm. I don't know. Um, mm. But I think particularly for me as a stepmom coming into a situation where I had stepkids who were old enough to witness, you know, any blunders, any mistakes, it's not like I had yeah. babies who won't yeah. remember all my screw ups, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I learned very early on that in order to build that relationship of trust with them, you know, to be humble and have humility when I made a mistake. And even though I'm the adult, it doesn't mean that I'm going to do things perfect. My goodness, you know, we all know that. And so being able to come back even to your kids and say, I was wrong. I'm really sorry. I just had to do that last night with one of my teenagers. And it's 
it can be, it can be hard to do. It can be really hard to do. And so it's something that we try to practice and model for our kids. And we do it with each other as well. You know, if we've gotten into a disagreement in front of the kids, you know, we make sure that, you know, even if we've apologized in private, we will apologize in front of the kids as well so that they can see that reconciliation and so that, you know, they can kind of see that um, cycle and and what that looks like in real life. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And the, the, the final chapter in your book is about perfection is the enemy of good. And I think that's a really interesting chapter. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Yeah, that's one of my favorites. Um, I think just as as a mom, it's been difficult, especially because of social media. You can really get wrapped up into like scrolling through and getting this idea of what being the perfect mom looks like. And I've always been a perfectionist in my life. And I and and I think it's, you know, not surprising that someone like me would end up as an analyst at the CIA because of, you know, mm. the, the way that I was in school and growing up. Um, but, you know, I learned somehow at a young age that if I was going to fail at something or thought I could fail or that I wouldn't be the best, I would just avoid it all together. And that's something that I don't want my kids to do. And I've already seen it with my son who's only four. And so I don't know how much of it's learned. I mean, he's he's a carbon copy of me. (laughs) So maybe it's innate, you know, but that's one of the the ways that it plays out in our family. But it's something that we learned at the CIA and, and it helped us there because, you know, I give an example of the analytic training where it was specifically an ambiguity and uncertainty analytic training exercise that I was doing late one night. And, you know, I decided, okay, I had done enough. And I closed my computer and I was leaving for the night. And my colleague said, how are you leaving? You know, and there were many that stayed there for hours. And I just said, well, it's an uncertainty exercise. That's the whole point. There is no answer. No matter how Mm. long you stay, you're not going to get it right. Yeah. And that's really difficult because people are trying to make things perfect. And you really need to know when good is good enough because a lot of these people would stay up late during these training exercises and then they would do poorly the next day because they were too tired to perform what was asked of them, right? And so it's this concept that I've carried over from the agency in that regard and, you know, applied it regularly in parenting and then tried to pass it down to my kids because I don't want them to be afraid to try new things. And this gets back to the whole well-rounded thing, you know, getting that material for you, me, same, same. You know, if our kids are too afraid to fail, they're not Mm. learning new things. They're not Mm. well-rounded. You know, we want them Mm. to try lots of things and we want them to be confident. And so we have to give them room to fail. And, but, you know, we give them those confidence wins as well. And so they learn, you know, that good is good enough and that they shouldn't be avoiding things. And and I think one of the greatest ways is to model that, you know, in the same yeah, way that I'm, yeah. I'm modeling for them that I'm trying new hobbies, a lot of those hobbies I'm terrible at, you know? Yeah. And that's okay. It's still fun, you know? And, and there are going to be things that, you know, my teenagers, when they saw me wake surfing, like, I know it was like so frustrating for them because it was hours of me just like falling over and over and over again. And I just said to them, you know, because they all gotten up like the first time they're all like ridiculously coordinated and can surf without a rope for like an hour behind the boat i mean it's (laughs) it's it's insane and i just said you know guys i know this came easy to you and i know that a lot of things have come easy to you because you're very talented kids and that's great and i'm proud of you but i want you to know that at some point in life (laughs) something will not come easy to you and i want you to remember this moment here (laughs) me falling over and over and over again and we get back up when we fall because you're going to experience i don't i don't know when it's it's going to be, you know, but I, I want this to be an example to you. And then, you know, sure enough, my son Ari actually served for the first time with Ryan a couple weeks ago. And just the fact that he 
was willing to do something that I know he was terrified mm-hmm. of. Mm-hmm. Um, just felt really good. I was really proud of him. And yeah. so it kind of all comes full circle. Yeah, it does. I think it's a very important lesson in life because it's so easy to be intimidated by new things and yeah. uh, and not persevere and it can hold you back in so many ways. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up today? Yeah, you know, I guess I'll say, um, mm. you know, I think a lot of people, you know, write books about the CIA, whether they're people who've been there or not. We really, I think the number one goal for us was to write something that was authentic to our experience there. And we really wanted to write something that our our former colleagues could be proud of. We, you know, we didn't want to write something like Hollywoodized or gimmicky. Of course, there's, you know, some fun stuff, you know, with Ryan's operations, but none of it's exaggerated. You know, none of these are flashy gimmicks. And what we really want people to understand is that, you know, yeah, we enjoy Jack Ryan and James Bond, you know, as well. Mm. Um, But espionage is, you know, not what you see in the films. There can be some excitement, but it's really about being well-rounded and security conscious. And these, you know, we've adapted these real skills in simple and straightforward ways and anyone can use them whether you're a parent or not yeah and you know we really think that they set people up for whatever life throws at them you know the cia prepares its officers to deal with just about anything and so of course we want that for our kids mm-hmm. brilliant where can listeners find out more about you and where can they find your book so they can find out more about me on my website at www.christinahillsburg.com i'm also on twitter at christina hillsby and on instagram at christina hillsburg and the book is available wherever books are sold excellent thank you again thank you thanks for listening this is secrets and spies 